The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton, for the next 30 minutes, a frank, open, honest conversation about gambling addiction and gambling. Uh, as always, with Epic Risk Management, joining us here today is our pal, Dan Trillaro. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Craig. How are you today? Great. I'm very happy to have another compulsive gambler on with us from Ohio, I understand. And this is Scott. Scott, good morning. How are you? Real good. Real good. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on to tell your story. When was your last wager? Actually, um, alcohol and cocaine were my biggest problems. Gambling, not so much, but my date is October 31st, 1994. Oh, congratulations. Wow. Thank so you. 30, almost 30 years into recovery. One day at a time. I looked it up this morning, 9,985 days, one day at a time. Oh, well, that's a 10,000 will be a celebration for sure. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let, let's go back to when you were younger. Do you remember when you started either using drugs, alcohol, or, you know, for, our, for us, you know, we, we really focus on the gambling aspect of it. But since you've acknowledged that you've kind of dabbled in all three, you know, how does your story begin? Well, uh, my dad was an alcoholic um, in the food business, and we had these lavish big parties at the house, clam bakes and, and so forth. And he thought it'd be great to have a little bartender on staff. So at nine, 10 years old, he got me a little Boston bar book. And then I was the bartender and, uh, his buddies would come over and they'd try to, you know, stump me with Harvey Wallbanger and Rusty Nail and Sidecar. And I would run back and open up my little book and I'd have the glass, the ice, the garnish, you know, and I'd run back for my little pat on the head. And I, I equated this amazing sophistication with this, this event, you know, and, and I couldn't wait until I was old enough to do it myself. So I didn't. Right. <laughs> uh, sipping and trying, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I can remember uh, being 13, 14, and, I, and my dad had a refrigerator set aside for just his beer. And I would go down when he was on a tear, and I would take a couple cans out and put them up over the heat ducts in the basement. And then when I needed a drink, I could take two down, put them in the back of the refrigerator, take two out of the front. His inventory didn't visibly change, and I would have a couple of cold ones that I could take on my newspaper route. You know, and I don't think I needed to have a Budweiser because of the stress of that job. <laughs> you know, so it was and then we moved around a lot. My dad uh, was in the airlines and um, I was in seven schools in 12 years. Wow. I'm going to stop you there, Scott, because, Dan, you know, we, we hear this a lot where the activity, whether it be gambling, drinking, and I assume not the drug aspect of it, but certainly drinking and gambling started off as something that was familial. So right. something that was a, a fun event with family members or loved ones, and it wasn't looked down upon. It was actually something that you look forward to, right, Dan? Yeah, that's what we typically see. It's like, you know, depending on how we grow up with our family, with our culture, it could be glorified, right? I, I have countless stories of friends who started with family poker night, with, you know, drinking pops on the weekend with family member, Christmas, holidays. You know, certain families and cultures just kind of glorify it. They accept it. And the, the concept that you hear a lot, as long as you're doing it under my roof, that's fine. I want to be able to watch you. You can drink at my house. You can gamble at my house. But that can still lead to that exposure at an early age where you think it's okay. 
Yeah. So you start drinking as a, you know, dabbling at least as a young guy. And then you, you get to a certain age where your buddies are drinking, drinking is more acceptable. Or did you very quickly become a closet drinker? Uh, very, very quickly. And, and then, uh, you know, I moved around a lot. So every time I was a new kid in school, every couple of years, and I could look at say, man, if only I was better at sports, I could be on the team with Dan. If only I was more athletic or more, I could ski or I could, Oh, smarter. I could be on the chess club. I could look at any table in the cafeteria and figure out why I didn't fit in, why they were different than me somehow. And I knew the one thing, you know, that could get me out of that was, was negative attention. So the class clown reared its ugly head uh, pretty quick. And then I ended up doing stand-up comedy for 14 years. As an escape? You know, as, as I look back on it, I'm sure it was uh, an escape, but it was also gave me license to act the way I wanted to act. So you basically, you wanted to create a version of yourself that you liked. That was exactly. Popular. Yeah, exactly. I could, I, and then, you know, every, each time I moved, I could make up a past, you know, of, of cool things I did because nobody would know. And as soon as I got on the road, I was, I was a persona, you know, it's a different uh, a yeah. character. When, let me ask, before you started doing the stand-up comedy, what, you know, we, when we talk to gamblers a lot of time, you know, the young gambler whose dad takes him to the track or is, you know, or the neighborhood bookie or, you know, has slips on a Sunday that that lent to a cool factor because they knew stuff that their buddies didn't know or they had access to things that their buddies had heard about. And I wonder before you became a young adult and started, you know, your stand up comedy career, if you ever used drugs, alcohol or, or a combination to try to earn friends, to try to make friends, to try to be viewed as, yeah, he's the new guy, but he's got access to beer. You know what I mean? And I had access to good beer because with my dad's connection to the airlines, I could get Coors. And okay. Coors banquet beer. East of the Mississippi, but I could. So I had, in fact, I got thrown out of my high school graduation for selling Coors out of the trunk of my car in the, in the parking lot at the graduation. So, you know, that was a cool factor, you know, for me. So, you know, the life of a stand-up comic is lonely, which lends itself to addiction pretty well. Uh, I, so I'm going to take a leap of faith here that on the road is when you not only discover other things that you enjoy doing, but start a downward spiral. And very, very quickly, and I was really, I was, I'll say successful. I opened for people like Mel Tillis, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. Um, King. You know, I was at a pretty high level of that of that occupation, television, movies and, and so forth. And I had access to time and money, which was not a good thing. You know, I would have consequences and my attitude was well, I can afford that. Right. <laughs> it wasn't right. necessarily a deterrent. But, you know, uh, and I and I've often said I was the only person facing the wrong way. Meaning what? All alone in a crowded room when I was on stage. I was right. alone in a crowded room. I was the only one looking the wrong way. Would you chase that feeling off stage? Like when, when I gambled, I wanted to gamble alone. I wouldn't want attention. You know, I felt, I had this, I felt this, uh, I always described this as a, a cocoon of safety. It's where I felt normal. It's where I felt good. You obviously felt good on stage. It, 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 whatever it did to you inside, it made you feel good. Would you, would you, try to find that off stage in some manner? 
you know, I always, I always wanted to be the, the, the funny guy at the restaurant, the funny guy on the airplane, the funny guy in line at the movies, you know, I was always on, so to speak. So I was always looking for that, that I guess in my mm. twisted mind, positive reinforcement, Got which it. wasn't. When did gambling become a part of the story for you? When I was opening for, uh, for acts in, in Vegas, Atlantic city and, uh, and some of the resorts, when we got there, we got a line of credit equal to our, our credit, our contract. And we got a little fruit basket in our room that had $5 chips all stuck in the bananas. So, so obviously what we're hoping for was that we would I gotta stop you. I just, I'm just, I'm just thinking to myself, if I had ever gotten paid in casino credit, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. That would not have been a good thing. No. So that, yeah, there was more than one week that I worked for, uh, room and board yeah yeah so you you viewed gambling or used gambling the same way you wound up using you know booze and drugs it didn't matter it, it, any give me anything i can use a year's supply of it in 30 days got it yeah yeah got Scott, it. you always so talk access about- access to access you know and availability and and you know we mm-hmm. would we'd be you know scra- scraping for cigarette money by the end of the week Scott, you always talked about the, the, the need to always feel on because, you know, that really resonates. You know, when I think about when I was gambling, I always had to be on, you know, kind of a people pleaser, you know, right. just kind of being. And that's one of the, 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 the traits that you typically see with those people who struggle with addiction. And but what would Scott look like if you weren't on? What's the Scott that's not on? What does that Scott look like? I'm actually a pretty reflective. I like to cook. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I mean, I guess I'm kind of a people person still, I, you know, in my job now, I work for the state in problem gambling now, and, and I'm a counselor, I'm a licensed counselor. So there is an aspect, and I must say that having a background in comedy makes me uniquely qualified to work in state government. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, Scott, but, I, wonder um, if you could, I wonder if you would share with us, um, your kind of bottom of the barrel come to Jesus moment. Like what, 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 if you don't mind sharing it, you know, how ugly was it? What, what was it? I, I had reached a point and I never wanted to quit anything. I wanted to figure out how to do it successfully. And I, and I think we all share that, that I'm smart. I've, there's gotta be a way to do this without all these consequences. And I really think I had run out of all those things. My wife had me on a launching pad. Um, and I decided I'm going to quit. I'd been in treatment several times. I have five DUIs. I've been in jail. Um, you know, you didn't have to convince me there was something wrong. Um, but I, I didn't think that I could not drink. And I quit drinking one day and I, I tried to detox myself and ended up in a uh, rather eventful grand mal seizure in a, in a half bath at my parents' house and ricocheted around in there for a while. Ended up <clears throat> broken fingers, broken ribs, uh, some stitches. And uh, they, they hauled me off to the hospital. And I remember at one point looking over to see my mom and my dad standing in, in between them, holding hands with a priest. And I was laying there thinking, this is really bad. I'm not even Catholic. <laughs> you know, this I've seen this yeah. in movies and this does not end well. <laughs> what did you do? You asked for a rabbi? No, I, I, I just remember thinking in my in my mind. I had this complete sense of understanding of, of all and not that my life flashed or I saw lights or heard 
bells or, or trumpets or anything, but I just had a complete sense of understanding. This is the outcome of everything, every decision, every choice I've made up to this point. This is it. Mm-hmm. And that, and was that it? Did, did you dabble after that? Like that, so that, that moment, your life changed, bang, just like that. Well, I, I, not quite. My mom called my wife that night to tell her that they just told them that I wasn't probably going to make it through the night. And my wife said, oh, man, how am I going to get the car back over here? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's well, kind of an indication of where that was. Good relationship. Well, you were, uh, you were a lousy husband for a while. <laughs> well, yeah, it, yeah. No, no argument. Yeah. So, um, so she actually came to my parents' house with a friend with a spare key and took the car. So I didn't have a way out. And they told me in the hospital I could go to a psych unit, a nursing home, or a treatment center, but I couldn't go home because I was a danger to society and myself because I had talked about, you know, not caring if I made it. So I knew that they didn't lock treatment centers. I wasn't sure about the other two. So my idea was to have my wife come get me and say I'll go to a treatment center because it was one close enough to the house I could walk home from. So my plan was to get back into town and then I could just walk home from the treatment center. But she, uh, she swears to this day, she slowed down before she pushed me out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. When did you come to terms with being an addict and when did you stop lying? Boy, that's, a, you know, um, it was a while after, uh, you know, the day she dropped me off was October 31, 94. And then uh, at the end of 10 days, they came to me and they said, uh, you know, your insurance ran out. We have to put you out. And they actually put me to the curb at 10 days. And one of the one of the counselors there said, you know, good luck to you. Um, and my wife said she wasn't going to pay because I said my op- one of my options was to pay for my own treatment. She said, I'm not paying you. I'm not giving you any money. She had cut me off of all the accounts by then. She said, I'm not paying anything. You're going to be drunk in 20 minutes. And I stayed sober on that resentment. Wow. Show you. I'll show right. you, yeah. you know, for, for that whole that whole first year. And then, you know, I had some ups and downs. I, you know, I, I, I went bankrupt. I've been divorced. I've been fired in recovery. I've, you know, life still happened to me no matter what, because it took me a while. And if you if you think about how we recover, we don't want to give up everything all at once. <laughs> There's right. this, I know it's right, right. It's true. Character right. things and those things we have to work our way through. So well, it, I would it, say, you know, admitting you have a problem is just a step of many. You, know, right. you don't you don't cure all the ills in your life just because you admit you have a problem. That's just the first step you have to take to fix everything. You know, we always like to end the show on a positive note. And you know, hearing your story and seeing you just sitting here today means that you did figure it out, you did turn it around. And I always say, you know, there are people right now that are at day one, step one. And man, is that tough. And yet hearing a story like yours, it's again, what we talk about every week on our show, that you can conquer it. You can have a life worth living. You can have joy. You can find love again. You can overcome financial difficulties. And you can be Scott Anderson. So just for those people that might be listening to your story, or at, excuse me, the very beginning of this, what would you say to someone who's at day one? Very, very um, simply put, there is, I, I never realized that there could be this life. 
Um, you know, uh, a couple of uh, years ago, a, a woman that I met when she was 19 and I was 22 in a bar in Akron of all things, um, we parted ways. 38 years later, she moved back to Ohio and found me on LinkedIn of all things. And we reconnected and were married two years ago. Wow. And, and you know, I, um, I've never been happier. I've, I've got a really cool dog now. <laughs> you know, I have a great job. I work for the state of Ohio in problem gambling. I went back to college. I got my license to be a counselor. I work with problem gambling mm -hmm. now. I work with um, other people in other in other addictions and mental health disorders. Um, I, I get to work with guys like Dan, you know, got to invite Dan out to Ohio to spend some time with us. Um, you know, I, I have fantastic relationships. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, my mom is older. We're helping my mom with her transition to to what she's going to be doing next. And I'm available to do all of that. And I would never be able to do that. If I could just say one thing is that being an alcoholic is my single greatest asset. If I hadn't come to terms with that, I wouldn't have the job I have, the wife I have, the life I have, the friends I have, the relationships I have. I wouldn't have any of it if I hadn't come to terms with my addiction. How, how much more open mental space do you have than you used to have when you were knee deep in it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> space, time. I mean, right. you know, the, the planning, the lying, the covering, the recovering from the effect, the, the access, you know, all, I don't have to do any of that today. I got up this morning and made a cup of coffee and turned my computer on. That was all the planning I had to do for my day today. Well, Scott, we very much appreciate you sharing your story. I think these stories, as we said earlier, need to be told more. And uh, Godspeed and, and keep it up. Uh, I know it's a one day at a time battle, but uh, you're winning that battle. And uh, I can tell you, having never met you, that I'm really proud of you. And I think you're a great example for people who are just getting into it to recognize that you can figure it out. You got to put a lot of work into it, but you, you can do, yeah. figure it out and uh, you can uh, have a, an amazing life afterwards. There's no doubt. So thank you. Great. And, I, and I've watched you over the years. Thanks for everything you do. This is uh, really important. And, and um, I know we reach a lot of people and that's really helpful. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig.